Hey everybody, welcome to the final exam review for um, Gov. So there's two parts to this. There's uh, the branches of government, which we'll do this time. And then there is the, um, what's it's called? The uh, civil liberties and civil rights stuff, which will be the next episode. Um, so if you want this paper copy, I gave you a paper copy when you took the written final. It's also E-class, uh, I think under resources and content. So you can find it there if you want uh, and prefer to have it so you can follow along or just listen, whichever you'd like to do. All right, let's jump right in. So first question says, how can the president and Congress hold the bureaucracy accountable? All right. So the big way the president has is, first off, they're the person in charge of the bureaucracy. So they get to pick a lot of the leadership when it comes to the bureaucracy. So they're going to pick people that are going to, you know, do um, that follow a line or follow a line or whatever you call it with them and their vision for the bureaucracy. Um, they can also get rid of people. Um, that you send the executive orders, directives, things like that. Congress has a, a good chunk of of um, oversight over these, the bureaucratic agents. Uh, remember they fund them. All right. So they are the ones that sign the checks and approve the, the budgets and all those sorts of things. So that's huge. Uh, they also have that oversight function with the committees where if a bureaucratic agency is not doing something that they want or like, or whatever it might be, they can call them in and question them. And based on that hearing that I don't want to say trial, because that's not what it is, but based on that, uh, the, the results or, or what's said in that, that uh, committee hearing, um, the committee and then Congress as a whole could potentially do something to that bureaucratic agency. So those are the big ones. Uh, explain government corporations and independent executive agencies. So government corporations, remember, these are businesses run by the government. Um, it, these are typically going to be places, or I shouldn't say places, but um, aspects of our economy that uh, the government feels like, hey, we can do either better or just as good as any uh, of the private sectors. Sometimes it is because we don't want a lot of competition in these areas. You know, the Postal Service is the best example. Uh, the TVA is another one. Uh, there's a few others out there, but you know, the Postal Service was created and they were the, the mail delivery system. And they, the, the government just felt, hey, we don't want a bunch of people competing. All right. Um, Typically, you know, think of local, you know, we, we have the, the local buses, but you're not going to have a bunch of buses that are competing like taxis to race around and get to you. Uh, and then independent executive agencies. So don't get these confused with regulatory agencies because they are similar. Regulatory agencies are going to have that regulatory piece, though, where they can put some sanctions on you. They can do things like that. Independent executive agencies are independent of the, the president and for the most part uh, of the um, what you call it, Congress, and they kind of do their own thing, but they don't have that regulatory piece or function uh, that the other group does. So think NASA. You know, NASA is in charge of the space and space exploration and all those things that go with it. Um, but they can't stop, what's his name, uh, Elon Musk, from building his own rockets and sending them to space and things like that because they don't have that regulatory piece. Now, I think they're working, if I, I've read a little bit, not much, but I think they're working somewhat with uh, Elon Musk and um what's it called? SpaceX. Um, and so they've kind of come up with a partnership, but that's probably the biggest difference. Uh, another process of a bill becoming a law. I'm not going to go through every step because it's some of the most boring stuff in the world. You did a project on this or an assignment on this where you, you followed a piece of legislation that's actually been created and you went through <coughs> and followed it step by step. So it's got to be introduced and then it goes to uh, a committee 
and possibly subcommittee for hearings, work, markup, changes, all those sorts of things. The committee then votes on it. Once the committee has voted on it favorably, it then goes to the full House or the full Senate, whichever side it started on. Once they have voted on it, if they vote favorably, it then goes to the other side and it starts over. All right. Once it gets through the full other side, whichever side that is, it then goes to the president. Okay. Now, there's a lot of hiccups that can happen in there, and there's a lot of things that can happen in that, that process. Hopefully, you saw some of them, and we talked about some of them in class. But once again, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time going over it. You just need to know the basic steps here. Introduced, goes to committee, gets worked on, changed, adjusted, all those sorts of things. Goes to the full body, whether it's House or Senate, and debated for a little bit, voted on. Then it goes to the other side, process starts over. It, then once it's voted on successfully, both sides pass the same bill. It then goes to the president for signature. Legislative checks on the executive branch. Well, the legislative branch has more power over the executive branch than vice versa. Uh, remember, the legislative branch can always impeach the president, so they can you know, vote to impeach and then potentially kick them out of office. Uh, they control the budget. All righty. Um, they uh, work with the president on the budget, but at the end of the day, Congress is the one that's going to, to create the, the main budget and make all the changes and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. They get to approve all treaties. They get to, the Senate does. They get to approve uh, all appointments that the president makes. Okay. So there's quite a few uh, checks that the legislative branch has on the executive branch. Shared powers of the president and Congress over the bureaucracy. We already kind of went over this. Uh, the main one is the budget. The president makes recommendations for the budget, and then uh, Congress is the ones that will officially, you know, uh, approve it. So there's that piece. Um, yeah, I think if, if something else pops up, I'll, I'll share it in class. Number seven, uh, explain the nomination process of Supreme Court justices. So Supreme Court specifically, not federal judges and things like that. Uh, the process is similar for federal judges, but there's more input from the Senate on federal judges. Uh, but for Supreme Court, the president has a list of people that they want to, to put into office uh, as a Supreme Court justice. They will do their vetting, meaning they're going to go through the background and, and all that sort of stuff of their of their nominees that they like, and they'll pick one from that. Once they've picked that, they'll send it to the Senate, and it'll go to the Senate Judiciary Committee. They'll do their own background checks, and they'll do their own vetting, and then they get called in for a confirmation hearing. The Judiciary Committee will hold that hearing, ask questions, and then hold a vote. Uh, if they vote favorably, it goes to the full Senate. The full Senate then votes on it. If they vote unfavorably, then typically it's got to go back to the president for a new nomination. Uh, although it could go forward, but it typically doesn't. Okay, And then uh, once the full Senate has voted favorably, uh, they get sworn in and they are Supreme Court justice. Pocket veto. So the veto is a formal power. The pocket veto is kind of an informal, formal power to to. Just it's something the president uses, but the, they really can only use it certain times. So the veto is something the president would actually say, hey, I veto this and I'm sending it back. OK, a pocket veto is something where they just let sit. All right. So the president has the ability. If Congress sends them a piece of legislation, they can just let it sit and it can either become a law without their signature or if the time frame is right, it might become vetoed. So after 10 days, if something has not been signed by the president, uh, and Congress is still in session, then it just becomes law. So the president has that option. The pocket veto, though, this is where if Congress sends him something with less than 10 days left in their session, so let's say it's two days before the session is over, 
and the president doesn't really want to veto it, just let it sit and it'll die. If any piece of legislation that is not finished by the end of the session dies and it has to start all over. So that piece of legislation would have to go back to Congress at the start of the next session and go through the whole process again. And you have new people in there, so all kinds of things could happen that make a difference. So it is a powerful tool, but it's only on that certain time frame where with 10 days left in a session. Uh, pork barreling, remember this is going to be legislative stuff, and this is where congressmen are going to get, um, whether it's uh, work, like, hey, let's let's have a work project in my, my county, my district, uh, or state, uh, let's bring money into my county, my state, my district, whatever it might be. Uh, it's these, I don't want to say pet projects, but it's these projects that really only benefit um, that congressperson's area. Executive agreements, don't these get these confused with executive uh, orders. Executive agreements uh, is that informal power that the president has with other countries. Remember, all treaties have to be uh, confirmed by the Senate. Woodrow Wilson ran into this problem back in World War I. Uh, he could have done an executive agreement instead. An executive agreement gets around the Senate approval process. So the president does have the power and the ability to make agreements with other countries um, that get around that. And that's what executive agreements are. All right, committees explain the four types. So you've got standing. These are the permanent committees. Each side has uh, standing committees. The House has somewhere between 17 and 20. The, the Senate has somewhere between that the same number. So uh, there's about 20 or so on each side. They never cross over. The standing committee for the House and the standing committee for the Senate never meet up. They never talk. They never, you know, do anything together, uh, you know, officially. Um, but they are the kind of the big overarching areas that bills can go to. So, you know, there's a Veterans Affairs Committee. There's a um probably an education committee I, I don't know all of them but uh you know there's going to be these hey that's a big giant area okay of our country uh and all bills that deal with that are going to go to it okay the appropriations bills and things like that all right so that's standing uh the next type is going to be a select committee now a select committee once again stays on its side so there are House Select Committees and Senate Select Committees, and they are doing some kind of investigation. Right now, it's the Select House Committee uh, on the, the January 6th stuff. There, it's a Select Committee. They, they've been created just for this purpose. They were created just to investigate what happened last January um, at the Capitol building, okay? So they're going to do some kind of investigation. And once again, they don't cross over. There's not going to be a select House and Senate committee. It's going to be select House or select Senate. They can last from session to session. So this this committee that's in place now for the House, they could last into 2025, you know, or whatever. Uh, they don't have to go away. The next one is joint committee. A joint committee is a mix of the House and the Senate. So they come together and they are typically going to report some findings. Remember, we gave the example of, of the 9-11 report. That was a joint committee. And then finally is the conference committee. Remember when we talked about how a bill becomes a law, they do have to pass the same exact bill. So if there's any problems, if there's any changes, any differences from the House and the Senate on a bill, then a conference committee will come together. That's from the House and the Senate. They will meet and they will try and work out the differences. Uh, sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's difficult. It just depends. Uh, but those are the four types. 
All right, give examples of independent executive agencies. Uh, so I talked about independent executive agencies earlier, and I gave you the example of NASA. So that's a good one. Um, you know, uh, the CIA is also uh, an independent executive agency. Uh, don't get it confused. You know, they they do that covert work and stuff like that, but they don't really regulate anything. So just uh, don't don't get that mixed up. Uh, the 22nd Amendment. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, this is one of those, um, what you call it, um, 20, uh, sorry, one of the, uh, presidential amendments. Okay. Um, and <clears throat> it's basically the one that happened because, um, of FDR. Sorry, I, I'm struggling right now. Um. Basically, only, you can only be uh, elected for two terms, okay? Uh, you can serve uh, two terms or 10 years, whichever comes first uh, for the 22nd Amendment. House Rules Committee. Remember, one of the most important, most powerful committees in all of Congress. Now, it's only on the House side. There is no Senate House Committee, so please don't ever make that mistake. There's only a House Rules Committee. Uh, and why is it so important? Well, bills get voted on by the committee, and then it goes to the full House. But before it goes to the full House, it goes to the rules committee and they're the ones that are going to dictate a lot of things that happen with it is it going to be open is it going to be closed meaning can they add amendments to it on the floor can they not what's going to be the debate schedule when are we going to debate about it who's going to talk about it they get to do all those things so they have a lot of uh power a lot of responsibility in kind of getting the bill pushed through or not uh who do presidents nominate as judges kind of a vague question here um really there's no there's no guidelines in Article 3. It doesn't say judges have to be a certain age or anything like that. Uh, it could be anybody. You know, they could come grab me and they could come grab you and say, hey, come be a, a, a judge. Uh, now, are they going to do that? No, they're typically going to nominate people that um, believe, you know, that are on their side uh, of the, the political spectrum. Um, and they're going to typically, I shouldn't say typically, they're going to uh, grab people that have, some kind of experience in law, all right? They're not going to come grab me and uh, make me a judge. Uh, why are federal judge nominations so contentious? That's a pretty easy one. Uh, that's because of their lifetime terms. They're there for life. They're going to outlast presidents. What if I outlast some of the congressmen? And that's a big deal because not only do Supreme Court justices affect policy, but federal judges do as well. And they're going to be there for a long time. All right, divided government. Um this is when you have a um, Congress that is controlled by one party and a president that's controlled by another. Uh, that typically leads to where not much gets done. We could also run into the situation if there's a Senate controlled by one party and the House controlled by another. They don't work to work, they don't work well the, to get together either. So um, the divided government is. It can be an issue. I personally don't think we, you know, we, we were created and set up without political parties in mind, really. I think they probably knew there'd be some differences, but I don't know that they anticipated the differences that we have today. Uh, so I don't know that what I'm trying to get at is I don't think it's always necessarily a problem to have the divided government because then neither side has a blank check to just ramrod stuff through. Uh, 
that's a personal opinion of mine. Um, but I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. It's something we can talk about later. But, yeah, I don't think divided government is always a, a true problem. Uh, do, oh, no, Fed 78. Uh, this was one of the Federalist Papers, obviously. And it was about the judicial branch. Um, remember, it's about how the the branch, the judicial branch, is the uh, the weakest of the branches because they are so um, reliant on all the other um, branches. You know, they make a decision, and then the president has to um, enforce it. Okay, uh, bicameralism, uh, just where we have two legislatures. Okay, we have the House and the Senate. Remember, this was a um, compromise from the, the Constitutional Convention where we combined the, the Virginia plan and the New Jersey plan. Cloture vote. Cloture vote, remember, is a part of the filibustering process. So the Senate has the filibuster where they can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk a bill to death. Now, remember, they're just trying to delay action on it. They're not really going to kill it, but that's the goal. However, a filibuster can be stopped by a cloture. All right. So if I make a motion for a cloture, that means I want to close debate. Let's shut debate down. We're done. We've heard enough. I don't need to hear any more from you. So I make a motion for a cloture vote. If 60 members of the Senate, 60, 60, uh, of the Senate agree with me, then we stop debate and we move and we go vote on the issue right then. All right. So cloture vote is just a way to put a stop to the filibuster. Uh, this is why when you have 60 members of the Senate, you have a supermajority because there's really not much the minority party can do at that point to stop you. Log rolling. This is the favors that congressmen and basically politicians do for each other to get stuff done. So, hey, you vote for my issue. I'll vote for years. I'll appoint this person if you vote for my issue. Uh, there's a good example from Lyndon Johnson's presidency when he's trying to get the Civil Rights Act passed. He needed like three Republican votes. He called the Republican leadership in and uh, they are going to um, say, hey, we've got these three guys. I think it was three that we want to see appointed to these positions in government. And Johnson thought about it for a few minutes. Like, yeah, I think I can do that. If you guarantee you give me these votes on the Civil Rights Act, I'll appoint your people uh, to those positions of the government. And so they came to an agreement. That's log rolling. All right, the Iron Triangle. Remember, this is the uh, relationship between the um, Congress committees. That's one side uh, or one point on the triangle. The bureaucratic agencies and the uh, interest groups. Okay. And it's that relationship that they have where they're they're working together. I shouldn't say working together, but it's it's you know the interest groups. They're going to donate money to committee members. They're going to expect. I don't want to say expect, but if I donate a lot of money to this committee member, I want to be able to talk to them when a bill is out there that I am uh, concerned about. Okay, uh, committees will use the interest groups. Remember, they'll call them in for hearings. They'll ask them questions about bills and laws because they're they're experts. Okay, um, the interest groups are watchdogs over the bureaucratic agencies. They'll sometimes work together to an extent. It's not like they're calling interest groups in for investigative purposes. 
but they will use them to, to ask questions and, and things like that. So uh, there's a relationship there. The committees and the bureaucratic agencies, you know, they get called in for hearings all the time to ask questions. Hey, you're, you're supposed to be doing this, but you're doing that, so on and so forth. Okay. Uh, as far as understanding specific examples, I think there's an example on the test, if I remember correctly. Uh, I'll try and go over it in class when I go over this review question. Uh, 24, why do Congress and the president often clash? Well, main thing is you've got a president who has a national constituency versus congressmen who have localized constituencies. Okay. And so sometimes those things don't work out because you know, Congress has to be worried about who's going to vote them in. The president is worried about the nation and who's going to vote him in. So that, that's the biggest thing. I shouldn't say him. I got to get better at that. Uh, them. Okay. Um, congressional leadership and what does each role do? All right. I'm going to try and go through this super quick because uh, there's a lot. So Speaker of the House is the most important position. Remember, they run this, the House. All right. And it's only a Speaker of the House. There is no Speaker of the Senate. There's no such thing. So Speaker of the House, they are going to work very closely with the Rules Committee and just run things. Okay. Now, both sides have a majority leader and a minority leader. On the House side, the majority leader is going to work with the Speaker of the House. The minority leader really doesn't get to do much because there's not much they can do. On the Senate side, the majority leader runs the Senate, basically. Now, they're supposed to work with the minority leader, and they do for the most part, but it's not always going to be uh, a super great relationship, okay? So on the Senate side, the majority leader really is going to run things. You have the president of the Senate, the vice president, who's never there, so they have the president pro tempore. It's just a figurehead, really. They don't they don't run the Senate like the, the Speaker of the House runs the, uh, the House. Okay. Uh, and then you've got the whips. They're the ones that are going to work with the rank and file members of Congress, both on the House and the Senate side. Um, if you have a complaint, you're not going to go to the speaker. You're going to go to the whip. Okay. Vice president of the Constitution, the vice president's one lone constitutional job is to be the president of the Senate, but they don't do it. This is why I want to do that job because I can not do the job that's listed in the Constitution very easily. All right. Uh, seriously, though, the vice president of the Constitution, that's their only job is to be in charge of the Senate. They don't go anymore because they can't take part in debate. So they just sit there and sit there and watch and watch and watch. And it's just, you know, what's the point of being there? Uh, and that's why the power has been passed over to the you know, president pro tempore to kind of make it go. Uh, but the majority leader really leads things. Okay. All right. Fed 70. Uh, this is the argument for a single presidency, you know, uh, that the executive branch needs to have. Uh, that one person versus having a council of people or, or anything like that. Um, why justify a strong executive branch? Um, so remember that the, the executive branch was supposed to be weak. All right, Congress is supposed to be the strongest branch. Founding fathers really kind of believed that... Um, the president would be actually you know, really just figurehead. They, they won't do too much. And so um, the argument in Fed 70 is that we need this strong, strong leadership. We need this person that can you know, guide this country through the ups and downs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, how is the presidency different today than the vision of the framers? Well, like I said just a minute ago, framers envisioned a very weak president bowing down to Congress for the most part. All right, so the, the president that we have, the role of the president that we have today is much stronger than the founding fathers believed. Court packing, uh, you probably are familiar with this term from, what's their name, uh, FDR, <clears throat> excuse me. 
and when he was trying to, uh, he was upset because the Supreme Court had found some of his New Deal stuff unconstitutional. So he's like, you know what, I'll show them. Uh, I'll get 15 members of, uh, put on the, the Supreme Court and I'll pack them with my people and uh, I'll get everything passed through and all that kind of stuff. Okay. That's what core packing means is where you try and stuff as many people from your party onto the, 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 the judicial branch so that you can uh, have as much power as possible. Executive orders. These are the domestic things. So these are the at-home things. Remember, they have the force of law behind them. Uh, the president can issue them. And remember, they are directives to the bureaucracy. And since the bureaucracy enforces laws, that's why they are considered to have um, <clears throat> excuse me, the force of law behind them because they do enforce them as such. Um, they get around congressional approval. They can just be written, and then the bureaucracy goes about enforcing them. Gerrymandering, I think everybody's pretty, pretty familiar with this at this point, hopefully. Uh, gerrymandering is the, it happens when we, 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 we reset for a second here. Gerrymandering happens when we redistrict, or it can happen when we redistrict. Uh, it's open for interpretation if it's actually gerrymandered or not. Um, so, you know, we're presently drawing lines and gerrymandering is being thrown around a lot. I don't, I don't personally know. I haven't looked at the lines enough to know, and I, I, I'm probably not going to spend much time looking at the lines to, to decide. I'll I'll look once they start going to court and things like that, and I'll, I'll you know kind of have my opinion. But my opinion doesn't matter. My the only opinion is going to be the courts, and if they think that the lines were drawn unfairly, so we'll have to wait and see. But it's where you draw lines to try and get your party uh, an advantage. All right, congressional representation. I think this deals with the uh, the uh, trustee delegate and Politico um, models of congressional representation. I think if I remember correctly, we did this uh, as a uh, digital day assignment. So if you, I know it's, uh, I know it's a digital day and I didn't put a great deal of emphasis on it. But anyways, uh, you've got the trustee and the delegate. Those are kind of the two differences. Um, the trustee, trustee is what is going to be used probably the most. Um, and it's where they are going to um, go against their desires just because their constituents like it. They, they were put in place to do what you as, as constituents want. So even if I'm totally against this bill, if my constituents want it, I will go with it. The delegate means that I know better than you and I'm going to do what I want to. Okay. And so then the Politico is a combination. That's what most people do is the Politico. And you can use the delegate on small issues, but when it comes to uh, big issues, you better use the trustee because you don't get reelected. State of the Union, uh, that's just a requirement of the president. Uh, they have to give it every year. It used to be just a written document. Now it's made into a big TV production, all that kind of stuff. Finally is judicial activism versus judicial restraint. Activism, remember, is where the judges are supposed to actively take part in policymaking with their decisions. Okay, so you would take a look at the, the facts of the case. And then you're going to use kind of your political beliefs, your political leanings to make a decision. And if you set a whole new policy, that's okay. 
That's what you should be doing as a judicial activist. Judicial restraint is where you're going to uh, limit yourself to what's in the Constitution. You're not looking to set new policy. You're not looking to make a whole bunch of changes. You're just going to rule with the original intent, meaning what do the framers mean? What did they think when they wrote this document? So that's the big difference between activism and restraint. Okay, guys, uh, that's it. As always, if you have questions, concerns about the review, please, 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 please reach out either through Remind, uh, which I'll send out, and most everybody has access to that. Uh, you can also email me. I'll be happy to talk to you by email. Uh, if you want to do social media, you can do Daniels APGov or the main school account, chhsgov underscore civics on Twitter, and I'll be happy to respond to you uh, as quickly as possible. Second and third period, we take this test on Wednesday. First period, you take it on Tuesday, and then fourth period, you'll take yours on Thursday. Guys, prepare a little bit for it, and uh, I hope all's well. Good luck on all your other exams, and I'll see you in class when I see you. Later, guys.